from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hey, everybody. Hi, listeners. We hope you are faring well in the midst of this ongoing quarantine slash lockdown or whatever you want to call it with coronavirus. We are recording this on Holy Thursday. Mm -hmm. Most of you will be listening to this on Easter Monday and throughout the week of Easter. Yes, yes. So we pray and hope as we're recording right now for blessings on all of our very unusual celebration of this Holy Week and of um, of Easter. Yeah, the first time in my life, uh, except for when I was a rebellious teenager and wasn't really <laughs> going to Mass, that I've not been to Mass. Oh, to, I, I mean, for this long, yeah. and, and especially Easter, my goodness. Yeah, we're all feeling that. It's a painful time in that it regard. Is. It is, and I, I know we're all kind of settling, I guess, in for the longer period of staying at home than we originally hoped it would be. In our household, I feel like things are kind of, I don't know, kind of clicking a little bit more, like a feeling of a sense of order in working out some of the challenges of trying to have everybody home and just not have the house be in chaos. So that's Kind yeah, we've, nice. we've reworked our family charts for chores. Yeah, and also tried to be more sensitive to our son who's finishing college courses and, you know, needs more quiet time than the rest of us. So, so that's been good. And we've also, we all uh, like movies. I know that's not going to be a shock to you because of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we often talk about movies on our podcast. And if you hear Christopher, you know, speak somewhere, he, that art form is especially dear to our hearts. And so, we just made up a list like, well, we could watch this movie and this movie and this movie. This is so exciting because you just don't have the busy schedules to contend with. And we've watched a few good ones recently. And also we're just talking about how movies about the life of Jesus have also impact, impacted us and our, you know, that when that art is we, we noticed, beautiful. Uh, was it last? No, it was a few Easter's ago. Uh-huh. We noticed the generation gap because we wanted to show our kids what was meaningful to us from our 70s oh, childhood. yes, a miniseries. Those of you who are, you know, 40 and above, maybe 45 Here, I'll and just above. do this. Don't even give the title yet. ba bum bum ba 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 bum ba ba da bum bum ba da da dum there are people listening out there who you know you know now exactly what we're talking about, and that just taps some ancient muscle memory in you yeah. of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, which it was such an exciting thing to us as children, I think, to have on TV, which had so limited offerings anyway, to have several nights of primetime TV taken up with the story yeah, of awesome. Jesus. Yeah, every year. Yeah, and that, that actor, uh, something... Robert Powers, I think. I think, did I just remember that? I think his name is Robert Powers. I saw him many, many years later in some other production. I was like, who is that? And why is his face like deeply ingrained in me? Why do I want to start worshiping? Him? <laughs> <laughs> of course, I realized, oh, that was Jesus many years uh-huh. ago, many moons ago uh-huh. that he played Jesus. I found Jesus of Nazareth interesting on on many levels. It was 
I had already seen at that age, uh, I think it was called The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is kind of cartoonish almost. And I had seen, uh, sorry if I just downplayed your favorite Jesus movie, if that's your favorite Jesus movie out there. That was <laughs> just my impression of it as a kid. And I had seen in Catholic school, like the, the film strips of Jesus from the 50s that were left over uh-huh. and were still being shown on those old, you remember those old film strips? Of course, and you'd, yeah. you'd have like, you'd either have to read the story, the teacher would read it, or yep. there'd be a tape that went along with oh, it. Oh, yeah. And then they'd turn the film. There'd be a sound to tell you when to turn to yeah. the next scene on All, the film strip. None of those, I couldn't, just couldn't relate to those Jesuses. The guy in Jesus of Nazareth, I thought, was a step up. And, of course, I think Jim Caviezel did a superb job in terms of actors. He's my favorite Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, when we sh- we tried to show Jesus of Nazareth to our kids a oh, few yeah, years ago. Oh, yeah, we were going to talk about the generation gap. <laughs> oh, they just didn't get it. They really did not like the Jesus. <laughs> they didn't like the way he kind of gazed into the distance somehow and seemed sort of otherworldly. They really right. did not appreciate that. And they just... Yeah, it was too old to them. They, and that's so funny. Probably the greatest story I've ever told felt that way to yeah, you. Felt, yeah, that's you know, right. That's a good comparison. So that that wasn't a hit. So just so you know, if you try to share movies with your kids and they don't like them, that happens to us too. In fact, sometimes, like we were talking about for our list of movies, we talked about Chariots of Fire, and I could see them all rolling their eyes. <laughs> really? We're like, no, you have to see Chariots of Fire. Really? <laughs> they were not excited. We haven't watched that one yet, but it's kind of funny and we like uh what's the, what's the name of that claymation jesus movie that we like oh, with our family? miracle maker miracle maker i love that one yeah that's a good one it was produced by icon productions which was mel gibson's mm-hmm. company and I, I love the voice actors they mm-hmm. they chose and it's really well done it kind of morphs between classic animation as in like a, a cartoon type animation and then the claymation right and it's, I think it's superb, really well done. If that's, if you're looking for something for your family, I know you guys are listening to this after Easter, but it's Easter week, so yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> well, speaking of earlier, you mentioning the quarantine, and I know you had a question recently about all of us not being at mass and the idea of making a spiritual communion, and what does that even mean when you're thinking yeah, of the body? Yeah, I had a priest send me a, a question, a friend of mine. Father Pat Schultz in Cleveland. And this time of being away from our churches, away from the Mass, and the the issue of priests, can they even go into hospitals to anoint people? It's bringing up a great teaching opportunity for sacraments. Uh, For example, recently there was a diocese that had initially said it was okay for a priest who was not allowed into a hospital room to say the sacramental prayers of the anointing and then have someone else in the hospital put the oil on the person. Yeah, like a medical staff. Yeah, like medical staff, because the priest wasn't allowed in the room. This went to Rome, and Rome said no. And thank God Rome said no. I don't know what was going on in this diocese that they thought that would be okay. But what we're getting at here in the sacraments is the incarnational reality that the priest's hands are absolutely essential to the conferring of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And, and by this, what we're recognizing is this unbroken chain 
of power going out from Jesus's body. He healed through his body. Power went out from his body. And then Jesus laid his hands on others and that power went into their body. And then he laid his hands on others and that power went into their body. And I know I've said this in a previous podcast, so forgive me if this is a repeat for many uh, listeners, but this whole apostolic chain that healing comes through the body is absolutely essential. The priest lays his hands on that person and anoints the person with oil. That is a different ontological reality than a hospital staff anointing the person with, with oil. And it raises the question, what what do we even mean by spiritual communion? Mm-hmm. And I had this exchange uh, through text with my friend, Father Pat Schultz. I thought I would just read it. He said, can you do some commentary about how theology of the body shines a light on this idea of spiritual communion? I know some folks need some clarity on this. And this was my response. I said, I do think it's a bit of a conundrum. It seems along the lines to me of what you would call baptism by desire, like when when an actual baptism for whatever circumstances might be not allowed, or not not that it's not allowed, but impossible. Mm-hmm. If you're in a circumstance where it's impossible to be baptized, but you long to be baptized, the church would call that a baptism by desire. And I think that's, there's something similar in talking about spiritual communion, when you are not able to go to Mass to make the spiritual communion. But I, I really think it needs good catechesis. Here again, I'm, I'm reading from my text. It needs good catechesis, and I'm not hearing anything all that good out there, quite frankly. If I were to speak on it, I might just add to the confusion, because I find it a bit odd myself. Here I am trying to clarify and mm-hmm. not cause confusion, but I do find this confusing. Uh, what, what I would say more, though, is is that I'm concerned that others without good understanding of the need for the body in the sacraments might conclude, even after this coronavirus, oh, I don't need to go to Mass because I'm just fine now with spiritual communion. So I go on to say, it's a way of expressing perhaps a longing for the Eucharist, which is in itself good, and in that very longing, Jesus comes to us in some sense but it's not the same sense as the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I think some of our language is tricky and sticky here. When we say spiritual uh, in our modern way of talking, we often mean non-physical. Then we, we wrongly conclude that the body itself is not spiritual, that it's merely physical. And this is a problem. Mm. Our bodies have been spiritualized. If you are looking for a spirituality that eschews or rejects or runs away from the body or from your body or Christ's body or Mary's body, you're no longer living a Christian spirituality. Ours is the spirituality of incarnation. So spiritual communion cannot be understood in any way as a replacement for the real presence of Christ bodily. In His body is sacramentally truly present to us in the Eucharist. My priest friend responded, I wholeheartedly agree. The example I was thinking, I'll, I'll read this because I think it's pretty good. He says, the example I was thinking yesterday, tell me what you think. 
like right now, we're all social distancing and we're separate from one another. He said, I would much prefer to be with my friends in person, to hug and kiss and play with my godchildren in person, real flesh, face-to-face, hand-to-hand communion. But the best we're able to do right now is digital communion, which he puts in quotes, in this non-physical way of being together, again, which he puts in quotes. I FaceTime my friends and my godchildren, and in this way, we're sort of together, but in a non-physical way. He said, what do you think of that? And I said, yeah, I think that's, that's a good analogy. Mm. It's not what we're made for. We're made for something so much more. So spiritual communion shouldn't be thought of as a replacement for the mass. But when we are not able to go to mass, it's a way of uniting our hearts with the Lord, opening our hearts to the Lord, trusting. And this is a, this is a good thing to keep in mind. The Lord is not bound by his sacraments. But we know of no other way concretely through which we can attain that communion than through the sacraments. So spiritual communion is real. I don't want to downplay that at all. There is a spiritual union we have with the Lord, but it's not a substitute for Mm -hmm. the sacraments. I also find it interesting when we've been using a prayer of St. Alphonsus Liguori in our uh, family prayer times in place of being able to go to Mass. But I, uh, my experience is that that prayer was written by St. Alphonsus as part of uh, a prayer time in adoration. Like it's the conclusion of sort of a meditation to take before the tabernacle. Mm, mm. And that not, not that it's wrong that we're using it and we're not in adoration, but that the sentiment of I can't receive you right now is like being verbalized by someone looking at the tabernacle where the, or looking at the host and the monstrance, which has a little more clarity about the love, physical love for the physical presence yes. of Christ there. I heard a, a more than one person use this analogy, which I think is fitting, that our time here of not being able to go to the Mass is analogous to a couple who is abstaining during the fertile time, mm-hmm. uh, or you could even say a couple who maybe they're separated by travel or, mm-hmm. or what have you and are obviously physically not able to come together in their marital union. I think that's a very fitting analogy because the Eucharist itself is a marital communion with Jesus. And certainly any married couple knows that you're not always going to be able to come Mm -hmm. together in your marital embrace. There are going to be all kinds of circumstances that preclude that, don't allow for that. But there's still a bond there. There's still a communion there. And the very expression of the longing for the union creates a kind of communion, which is not the same as coming together in the marital embrace, but but is... uh, It's uniting. Yeah, it's uniting. And we, we have... Our longing for the Eucharist should be increasing in this time, Mm. just as a longing for a husband and a wife to come together would be increasing in times Mm -hmm. when they're not able to come together Mm -hmm. in their union. Yes. And if it leads to, I mean, it would be foolish to think, oh, well, we've been separated for so long now with all my travels. I'm just content now not to come together with my, my wife or my husband. That would not make much sense. Mm. Uh, similarly, after this time of, of needing to practice the spiritual communion, 
it should increase the desire for the Eucharist, not decrease it. Mm-hmm. And if it's decreasing it, then there's some fundamental underlying misunderstanding mm-hmm. or lack of understanding to begin with. Yeah. I pray, you know, that we are keeping our thoughts about this time clear, you know, how much we do need true sacraments in our faith walk. I'm also praying that, you know, that requirement of the church is that we receive communion at least once, once a, year a year during the Easter season. During the Easter, oh, yeah. So, Lord, I, this, I'm just going to lift that prayer up right now that, Lord, please make it possible that we could receive yes. you during the Easter season. And please, Lord, increase our yearning for you. St. Augustine says the whole of the Christian life is a journey into longing for you. Teach us, Lord, teach us, Lord, how to to long for you and increase our longing for you. Make that longing burn in us. Help us to feel it. Amen. Amen. We have another question? Yes, I have one from a listener named Eric. Hi, Eric. Eric says, hey, Christopher and Wendy. Hey. (laughs) Through John Paul II's perspective, is Christ saying that if we regain our humility and trust in God, we can, in a sense, go back to Eden and experience that true communion of persons? Maybe I'm romanticizing it to be a return to the perfected image of God instead of the best we can be in our broken image after the fall. I can see how we can't necessarily reside in that perfect communion of persons due to our brokenness, but can we experience it even for a moment in this life? What are your thoughts and experience with this? This is a great question. Really good. And I, it shows, uh, forgive me, what's his name again? Eric. 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 I was about to say Aaron, and I thought, no, that's not right. Eric, I love the fact that you are even asking this question. It reveals uh, the depth to which you've entered into John Paul II's teaching. Let me cut to the chase and just quote John Paul II directly, and then we can unpack more of what you're, you're putting your finger on here. Uh, John Paul II is very clear on this. We cannot return to the state of original innocence. And that's not just John Paul II's thought. That's a long-held tradition in the church. We cannot return to the state of original innocence. But we can, we can reclaim through ongoing inner purification, which does not come easily, comes through painful trials, Uh, We can never say in this life, I've arrived, so make peace with the journey. There's always more purification possible in this life. So, uh, we can't return to the state of innocence, but we can, we can indeed reclaim substantially that original, the original experiences of being male and female, we can reclaim far more than we typically think. Mm. And here I want to, so I want to hold two truths together. The, the truth of our faith is always found in holding uh, what seem to be competing truths together. We can't return to the state of innocence. Hold that truth, then hold that truth together with this truth. When St. Paul says, the power at work in us through the gift of redemption, is capable of doing far more than we think or imagine. Mm. Jesus Christ did not die on a cross and rise from the dead 
to give us coping mechanisms for our sin. He died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we too could live a new life. And here we have to pass through, and I'm drawing from St. John Paul II in his book, Memory and Identity here, who is summarizing in that book, 2,000 years of reflections of the saints, speaking about the stages of this purification being the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. The purgative way is where we all begin. We're starting out in the journey. We're trying to follow the commandments, and we're running into all kinds of resistance in our fallen humanity. Now, the Passover from the purgative way to the illuminative way takes real inner painful purifications. Mm. And here's where many of the saints say people give up the journey because it's painful, it's difficult, it hurts to be purified. And so a lot of Christians are stuck in the purgative stage of the journey. And they think Christianity is synonymous with that struggle against my fallen humanity to do the right thing. Whereas in the illuminative way, John Paul II says, the lights come on and the commandment is experienced less and less as a constraint and more and more as the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Mm. He says, in this illuminative way, for example, the commandment, the, the call to purity of heart, thou shalt not commit adultery or or the, the call, if you even look lustfully at another person, you've already committed adultery in your heart. John Paul II says, in the illuminative stage of the journey, we discover the value, the dignity, and he even says, the gratuitous beauty of the human body in its masculinity and femininity. And when those lights come on, or to the degree that those lights come on, the light of the beauty and dignity, the gratuitous beauty of human sexuality becomes the light that guides our actions. And we desire freely and joyfully to uphold the dignity of the human body. And that, the illuminative stage, isn't even the goal. We're still not there at what the saints call the unitive stage. The unitive stage of the journey, which again, requires more and more purification, which is painful, and very few people, because they don't, this is open to all of us, right? It's not just for the elite, but all the saints say very few get here because of the difficulty of the journey. Mm. But in the unitive stage of the journey, our heart becomes Christ's heart, and we feel in our hearts what he feels. Mm. We love as he loves more and more and more because our hearts are burning with the very love of Christ in it. All that said, it's, uh, John Paul also makes the point, as do all the saints, that it's not like you, you graduate from one level to the next, and if you're in the unitive stage, you no longer need illumination or, pu or pu purification, uh, and, and nor, or purgation, uh, and nor does it mean if you are in the purgative stage that you don't also taste little illuminations and mm -hmm. unions with Jesus's heart. So it's not like you graduate and leave the stages behind. You're kind of always circling, coming back. Even Mother Teresa, who lived in that unitive stage for the majority of her life, uh, she still needed certain purgations and illuminations. And even, you know, the Christian who's starting out, who's largely in need of purgation, is still going to taste those illuminations and those experiences of union. So I hope that shines a light for you, Eric, 
on your question, but but Wendy, what what do you want to say about I, this? I just I'm grateful that you felt led to share about those stages of the journey because I really feel like it's such a, what's a joy about doing this podcast is everyone who asks us questions is on the journey yes. already. Yes, nobody bothers to send questions who isn't already on that path to union right. with God. And some of the questions, sometimes they're painful for us to read because we're reading about the sufferings in that, especially the earliest stage of the journey when you know, you're know you trying to separate into a different lifestyle than you've been living and how, you know, how challenging that can be. Um, and it's just a prayer of our hearts is that through sharing with you all on this podcast that you are receiving some of those gifts of illumination that make make the burden light, mm-hmm. you know, because you've give, been given a, a vision of what is God really all about in my life, in my relationships, in the movements of my heart. And that it suddenly it's, it's less of a struggle and more of a joy to live it. Or there's a grace that comes through hearing other people struggle with this too. So I'm really glad that that was, I just feel like it's a reflection of our listeners and their journey and our yes. experience also reading the questions and thinking about our story. It's good insight, love. Yeah. So, I'm reminded, uh, he asked, I believe, um, if we could share from our, our own experience about these things. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a mistake I made early in our relationship of thinking, um, because I was experiencing such newness in loving you from what I had known in previous stages of my life, mm-hmm because I had been through a lot of purgation at that time, and there was a real freedom. Mm-hmm. I made the mistake of what the mountain climber calls the false summit. Mm-hmm. A false summit in mountain climbing is when, from your vantage point, you think you're approaching the summit of the mountain, and then you get there and you realize, oh, no, 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 the summit's way over there. I had reached a false summit thinking, because I was experiencing real liberation early in our relationship that, you know, in my youth and naivete, I thought I had kind of conquered this and figured it out and had arrived when I was 25 years old. Uh, That was 25 years ago. And uh, life has taught me in these 25 years that uh, you never reach the summit in this life. There's always more. Mm-hmm. There's always more to be purified. There's always more to discover. And that's why I said, make peace with the journey. And I'll also share this from our experience. There have been some very significant, powerful experiences that we've had. And, you know, sometimes powerful emotionally, f- physically, spiritually, Some of the most powerful ones, though, almost seem sort of granted to us, Mm, almost mm -hmm, like you mm -hmm. cannot make it happen. Yes, yes, that's a good point. And can't even predict that it's coming, but can only receive what's given. Yes. And it can be tempting to say, oh, how can we, how can we recreate that? Yes, yes, yes. And, and yet, yet really it's what's referred to as a, a contemplative gift in the sense of like, I didn't, through my own effort, bring that experience about, but it was truly just given by the Lord. And of course, our hearts being open to God and to one another is the necessary um, setup, yes. but it doesn't guarantee the experience that only 
can be received. So that's kind of our experience anyway, to speak a little bit more, you know, that those are rare and precious and memorable times that are given. Thank you, Lord, for those times. And, and we need to learn how to receive them and not grasp at them or try to to uh, control them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the surfer who, who goes out with the surfboard. He has no control of the wave and when it comes. Mm. But when that wave comes, ride it to shore, receive it as a gift. Mm. And I'll share one other insight that I think is really important. It has been a great consolation in my life. We shouldn't have this image that we won't be united with Jesus until we get to the summit because Jesus is the way. Mm-hmm. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. That means we're with him on the journey, and he's with us in every stage of the journey, which is very consoling. It's not like, oh, I got to just plug away at this until I get to the top, and then I'll be united to Jesus. There's a sense in that unitive stage of the journey of of a deep transforming union. That's what the saints call it, transforming union, where our hearts are burning with Christ's heart. We're so united to his heart. But, uh, but Jesus is the way. He's with us in the purgation, and he's the light of the world. He's the one who illuminates uh, the, the journey. So, Keep that in mind. He, he's not distant from you wherever mm. you are on the journey. He has descended, even if you're starting in hell, he has descended to hell. That's where he descended to pull us the whole way up with him. Mm. He covers all, every inch of that journey. He's with you and he's the one who's doing it. If you're on the journey, he's with you because you're on the journey because he's, he's, he's the one who's wooing you. We don't make the journey on our own. That becomes just self-righteousness. It's our brokenness and our realization that he's with us right there that keeps us humble on that journey. And that's where we encounter him in our weakness. When we're weak, then we're strong. The next question is from a listener named Maggie. Hi, Maggie. Maggie says, it makes me so uncomfortable knowing how many men watch porn that I live in constant fear someone will look at me and objectify me. I dress modestly, though I'm almost paralyzed by fear of a random man looking at me a certain way. I have a wonderful boyfriend who loves me and doesn't objectify me, and I'm comfortable around him and my wonderful Catholic guy friends. I would like to dress femininely and elegantly, but I fear showing the shape of my body. I don't want to hide that I'm female. I don't know what to do. How do I cope with the fear of being objectified. Bless you, Maggie. Oh, it's such a tender place, such a vulnerable place. I think she's expressing herself very well here. You should be disturbed. Right off the bat, I want to say this. You are justified and right to be disturbed that so many men look at pornography. This is an absolute affront to the dignity of Every woman and every man on the planet and the fact that you feel it is good. It's, it's a sign that your heart is in the right place. There are some, not just some, many, many people who have so numbed themselves to the pain that we're all in that, you know, women have even bought into this idea, oh, men will be men. Yeah, you got to let them do that. That's just kind of their thing. No, 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 no. There is no justification for fostering the idea that 
women are objects for male sexual satisfaction and base pleasure. This is not who we are. We are creatures made in the image and likeness of God. We are meant to be seen. We are meant to be loved. That's the truth of who we are. The good news is Christ meets us right in the midst of all of these distortions and can bring about a real, powerful, effective redemption of the way we think, see, and live. In the meantime, we have to suffer the gap. And Maggie, you are, you are in that place where you are suffering the gap, so to speak. And when I say the gap, I mean the gap between who we are in our broken, fallen state and who we are called to be. That pain, Maggie, offered for the men, that the very men you might fear are looking at you in an objectifying way, your pain offered as prayer for them can really and truly bring about a transformation of hearts. This is how redemption works. We must be willing to suffer with Christ, in Christ, the fall, if you will. We have to, if you will, absorb with Christ, never on our own. We cannot do this on our own, but with Christ, in Christ, we can, as St. Paul talks about, making up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of others. And by that, Paul is talking, of course, there's nothing lacking in Christ's suffering, but what is lacking is our willingness to bear them for others. And I would say that if this causes you to kind of withdraw, to, to, to hide away, to break down or shut down would be the better term, shut down, then I would say in a way that the, the sins of others are kind of beating you up. Whereas you have an opportunity in Christ, through Christ, to feel that suffering, which is very real, and offer it in prayer for others. I also want to say this about, you were talking about dressing and saying, I want to dress in a feminine way, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I encourage you to read John Paul II's Love and Responsibility, the section where he talks about modesty. And he says, Modesty is not incompatible with emphasizing sexual values. What does he mean here? He's saying that when a, a woman or a man dresses, they should not be afraid to express the fact that I'm a man or I'm a woman. And emphasizing sexual values is not in and of itself incompatible with modesty. What is incompatible with modesty, he says, is emphasizing sexual values with the goal of arousing lusts, lust in others. Clearly, you do not have that goal. Yeah. And modesty also, I want to speak just from a male perspective here. Women throw off a vibe mm -hmm. and men pick up on it. And you could have a woman who's dressed in in a sack that <laughs> reveals nothing of her feminine shapeliness, but has an immodest heart and a lustful intent in her heart and dressed in that sack that reveals nothing of her feminine shapeliness, she could be arousing the lusts of men. Whereas you could have woman who is chaste and modest in her heart, 
who understands rightly the beauty, dignity, and goodness of human sexuality and has no intention to arouse the lusts of others. But she's dressing in such a way that it's very clear that she's a woman. But the clarity of her womanhood is sending off the vibe of not come lust after me, but behold the dignity of who and what a woman is. And it demands a respect. It demands an honoring. And that is much more a spiritual reality that comes from the heart than it is a matter of what you are or are not wearing. Mm-hmm. I just have a few things to share also on this topic. And uh, one of the things that people know me who know me well know about me is that I look I know at, you well. Do you know what I, I but look I'm, at? So I'm very I, curious to hear I what you're going to say. I am a catalog person. Oh, indeed. My <laughs> wife is a catalog lady. <laughs> Even my roommate in college would just laugh at me how I could just page through catalogs. But I just have a policy of tossing out catalogs if they come with the models looking like, as you were saying, giving off that vibe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, that means there's a limited type of catalog that I'm looking at. It's not necessarily that all the clothes are that different, but the vibe that's being portrayed. And that's for my own sake and for our children's sake that I don't want that look on the faces of the uh, models to be being internalized by our children. There was a time when um, I was looking for a dress for a wedding, and I was kind of desperate. And I was looking online. On I just put on Amazon. I just typed in women's dresses or something like that. And our daughter Grace came and sat on my lap as I'm scrolling through. And some of the dresses and models that were coming up on the screen were pretty troubling. <laughs> and, Sending off the wrong vibe. Oh yeah, and Grace was kind of shocked, as was I. Mm-hmm. And she said. Those women are just showing off. Oh, that was her reaction. How old was she when? I want to say she was maybe eight years old, uh-huh. seven or eight years old. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting yeah, way to feel the vibe. it. Yeah. yeah, she felt it, and that's what she said. And I think one of the things is that feeling of of it being a violation yes, to be yes. seen that way. Is first of all, if you encounter someone who directly says or gives some indication of violating you that way, you know, you're going to have a reaction to that and you're going to need to take that to prayer. But I don't think you should take that on yourself as you have invited it or caused it in some way. But it is, it's going to, it's going to be painful and there's nothing, no magic way to have some kind of force field around us that such a thing would not be painful to us. It's, it is a violation. But I, I think the danger is thinking, oh, I never want to feel that again, so what more can I do? And I don't necessarily think there is something more to be done other than to have a deeper habit of prayer for those who are seeing wrongly and choosing that and allow that to, you know, bring peace, especially, I'm so happy to hear what you shared, Maggie, about your boyfriend and your Catholic guy friends. What What a gift of grace that is in your life. So, that's that's a beautiful thing. And different people will have different experiences depending on to whom they're exposed. Yes. You know, but I think what we would just want to emphasize is the love of God for you as a woman for every aspect of your body. And his just, he's like you're, he's cheering for you. He's on your team. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that you can go forward in, in confidence and not fear, especially knowing what he has 
in your heart, your desire to be a woman who leads others to him, men and women, you know, by the way that you live your life, including how you dress. So I pray that that's, those are helpful thoughts for you and that it kind of gives you a certain freedom because it's painful to feel afraid. You're reminding me of a few experiences I've had, Wendy, of speaking with women over the years who have been so deeply wounded in this way and it can take on all kinds of different manifestations. Oftentimes, the woman who dresses dresses in a kind of masculine way mm. or the woman who is intentionally making herself unattractive to men, oftentimes there is a deep, deep wound there that goes way back in that woman's heart to experiences of men who have looked on her as as object as an object, mm-hmm. uh, and they have experienced that pain so deeply that they take on uh, a whole different way of holding themselves, um, kind of a masculine way of holding themselves, and or they they may even intentionally gain weight, or if it's not intentionally, maybe maybe subconsciously there's a a gaining of weight. I'm thinking of a woman I know who who did confess to me she intentionally gained weight to avoid men looking at her in a lustful way. My point here is these these wounds are real. They go very, very deep. And Christ knows every single pain that we have suffered. And really and truly, there is healing to be found in uniting our pain with his. He does not promise he will take away our pain in this life. He does promise that he is with us in that pain. And he wants to show us another way of seeing, another way of living, another way of holding ourselves that comes from a profound sense of the holy and the good and the true and the beautiful and that we can send that vibe out into the world and it does inspire others. It does create different reactions in the hearts of others in the way we carry ourselves. So I want to say to Maggie, your femininity, Maggie, is a gift for the world. Will some not know how to honor that gift? Tragically, that is the case. But your femininity is not an occasion of sin for others. Your femininity is not the problem. The lusts of others is the problem. And there is a way for you to hold your femininity and to feel and live it as the gift that it is that can inspire others, even those who might be inclined to treat you as an object. The way you hold yourself, carry yourself, living from that place of understanding who you are as a woman can inspire and call out the best in others. And I want to invite you to that. I want to tell you it's real. And I know that I've experienced that in my own life and in my own relationships. It's really possible, but not without interior work, not without letting the Lord in there, not without learning truly who is Mary, who is this woman, and and how did she exude this femininity? Everybody who has seen Mary, the visionaries, say she's the most beautiful creature in the world um, that God ever created. She is. She, she exudes this authentic feminine beauty, and that authentic feminine beauty calls out the best in our humanity. Mm, amen. Well, I think we should leave it there yep. for the sake of 
time on this podcast. We went a little longer even maybe than we typically do, but <laughs> there's some good stuff we were talking about. Uh, we just want to lift everybody up during this Easter week. It's an amazing time in the life of the church. It's a difficult time in the life of the world. Christ is with us in those difficulties. Lord, we ask you please to guide us through this time, and we ask your grace and blessing on those who especially need it, who are suffering with this coronavirus in the most difficult ways. Yes, Lord. We entrust our lives to you, Jesus. Show us who you are. I, I want to extend again an invitation to anybody out there who wants to follow me on YouTube. I'm doing a series every day. I go on YouTube Live at noon Eastern Time in the USA, uh, and I'm doing a series called Finding Peace in Troubling Times. You might want to check that out. Mm-hmm. Till then, uh, till till when? Till next time. <laughs> God oh, bless you all. Tomorrow till at tomorrow noon. at noon. <laughs> <laughs> when they come to see you live. <laughs> what is our sign off? I forgot our sign off. Uh, you are a gift. Become what you are. Hey, That's we did it in it. reverse that we time. Did, yeah. That was pretty clever. <laughs> okay. Bye. Good one, Wendy. <laughs> Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. Mm-hmm.